Hey, this is Father Nathan again. On this episode of The Joyful Prior, we're continuing and kind of concluding the story of Ray. First, we told the story. Then, in the previous episode, we looked at what we call compassionate response. What were questions that readers and listeners had after hearing about his story and and my and my team's response uh, to their concerns, which often come out of some sort of broken heart because death and separation uh, and grief uh, just hurt. So compassionate response. This episode, we're going into spiritual practices that I might be able to offer uh, that have some connection with this story of Ray. I've been a, a Catholic all my 66 years. I've been in the Dominican order for 42. We're semi-contemplative. The idea of our calling, our vocation, is to contemplate and to give to others the fruits of our contemplation. So if I'm really true to my deepest calling, I'm supposed to have the groundedness and uh, the wisdom of a monk and the availability in the world to uh, interact with people, including you. I'm doing this on uh, Zoom. I hardly ever used Zoom before the pandemic, a little bit, but not very much. But when it became impossible for us to gather safely anywhere or to travel to see each other, Zoom emerged in my life as a, a much more of a force. I ended up with a lot of content that I then placed on my YouTube and my YouTube channel. And believe me, I never in my life thought I'd have a YouTube channel. I got through all of my schooling on a typewriter. Nevertheless, I had more time after the pandemic to organize things. So uh, if you're interested in finding out uh, more beyond this podcast, my YouTube channel is Father Nathan Castle, and it has different classes and things. It looks to me like a lot of people uh, in the United States and around the world have uh, disaffiliated with organized religions. You very frequently hear people say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And then even for people who were very frequent in their attendance at a, a church, a synagogue, a mosque, uh, during the pandemic, a lot of times that just wasn't possible. So a lot of uh, houses of worship streamed their services online and lots of people ended up looking for spiritual sustenance and nurture online, which maybe that's why you listen to this podcast. So I, I really like this rather late in life vocation of mine to be a Catholic priest available to anybody that wants to listen and to do some basic teaching. We always do the work that we do with the souls that ask for our help with prayer. There always is a little bit of hesitancy and about coming into the presence of someone you don't know. Are they safe company? I don't pick up hitchhikers on earth and I don't pick up hitchhikers on the next plane, on the spirit plane. Part of the way that I specify in spiritual communication who I'm, I want to be around is I do what Catholic Christians do. Even if you're not one of us, you've probably seen us cross ourselves in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm a big sports fan, and you often see baseball players in particular crossing themselves before they throw a pitch or before they swing a bat. Or maybe afterwards, they point at the sky and, and make a sign of the cross that's a gesture of gratitude. 
you could do this as a part of your own spiritual practice if you wanted to. We believe, I believe, that uh, the person of Jesus was, he was crucified, I believe, because of love. I just believe people kept telling him, if you don't stop loving that person, if you don't stop loving that person, we're going to kill you. I just think he was insistent that his love had no limits and he would love everybody always. That's my read. Uh, and if it meant for him having to die of a, a public uh, humiliation and a horribly painful, torturous death on a cross, okay, I'm not going to stop loving. So I just believe it's, um, it's a really courageous act of love that I'm caught up in. And my mom taught me to pray by making the sign of the cross again, when I was really tiny, if you've been around Catholic people that are raising a child there, they very often have to take the child's hand and teach them to touch the forehead, the heart and the shoulders in this order. But when you're really little, it's kind of all over the place. You know, uh, I was at a church uh, a few months ago and I saw a little child walk in with a busy family and the, the child went over to the baptismal font where the holy water was in the entrance of this church. And she, she, you could tell she'd been trained. She's maybe three. She put her hands in the holy water and then she went. And then she lost interest. <laughs> she just walked away. But she, she had, she at least made a good start. My mom taught me about, um, about the presence of God in me. It's true that God is in heaven. God is in the next realm, uh, so on. But if we believe that, that God is everywhere, well, where we're somewhere, and if God's everywhere and we're somewhere, we and God overlap. Think of like Venn diagrams. We and God are in the same place. So if you want to talk to God, it's not inappropriate to imagine God being elsewhere because God is elsewhere if God's everywhere. But God is also present to us. And it's just easier to be in a, 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 a personal relationship with God if you presume that God is with you already or even inside you with me. My, my, um, my mom taught me that my, my eyes were balls. And when your eyes are open during the day, you look out the front and see what's in front of you. But when you close your eyes and sleep, you look out the back. And that's what a dream is. You're seeing something inside you. And you and God can talk to one another uh, during the night if you consecrate yourself before you go to sleep. So I learned how to do that as a tiny little kid. I'd pray in the name of the Father with may may you be in my mind, may you be in my heart, and may you be in my the fullness of me, my body, kind of tracing uh across the body. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we think of God as uh being one being, but within three persons that's for another time but for right now again back to my mom who was such a good teacher of the faith not just the rules and regulations but spiritual communion and love uh, she knew that i loved um, pirates the way some children love dinosaurs i was learning about pirates when i was tiny and i had a record and a book that uh, were all about pirates and in any pirate book there's a picture of an island a deserted island a palm tree maybe a broken boat the picture I remember from my childhood had a little crab and then it had a dotted line going all over the place and then an X. 
Well, children learn really early that X marks the spot. Well, what spot? What's what is demarked by the X? Well, it's the treasure, but it's buried. You can't see it because it's buried. Like you can't see out the front of your eyes when they're closed, but buried inside you is another world, a spiritual world. So my mom taught me that I was making an X like this. I was learning my letters and I was making an X over the spot where the treasure is buried, which is, point the camera down a little bit more, right here. So I was taught that God lives right inside me and that all I need to do is to make the sign of the cross and then knock on the door and say, hello in there, I'd like to talk to you, please. And then I would say whatever I wanted. And I probably talked more than listened. It's uh, it's easier to do that. It's easy to do that in prayer. Nevertheless, uh, I we always go in, in these uh, crossing stories. We always start with prayer. And for Catholic Christians, we start with the sign of the cross. So I just thought I'd make that available to you for uh, your own consideration. With Ray in particular, one of the things that he did that was so extraordinary was that he changed his mind. Um, I've, I've worked most of my career on college campuses as a campus pastor. And I'm familiar with the advance of knowledge. We're not teaching the exact same things we were like when I was a college freshman in 1974. There's a lot of new information that's been learned since then. So there were things that were believed to be true in 1974 that were passed on to me because that was the state of the art in a particular discipline. Some disciplines have advanced beyond that. And sometimes that involved having to unlearn or go beyond a previous uh, presumption about what was true. But then new information brought us in another direction. The scientific method proceeds that way. It starts with what's known Somebody comes in and creates a hypothesis. Maybe this other thing could be true. And then they create some sort of experiment that might give us evidence that this possible new bit of information ought to be accepted as true. And then if they can demonstrate that the hypothesis was true, they, have, they can make the argument that, well, now this new formulation uh, might even supplant the previously known truth. I believe that faith works in a similar way, where uh, we're both uh, we're both the same and different as we move through life. There's things about you and about me that have not changed, that are uh, that are stable and unchanging and true. And then there are other things about us that quite obviously do change. And sometimes it's to our own detriment if we are not willing to make changes that would be prudent and good and true. In the case of Ray, the reason he was so stuck in the afterlife is he had formed the idea based on teaching that he got early from his mother and his pastor that God takes people. That's why they die. Have you, haven't you heard that before? God took them. And sometimes we presume uh, good motives on God's part. Oh, God has taken our little loved one and, and now there's another little angel in heaven, that kind of thing. Well, Ray had, had internalized the idea that people die because God takes them, but he died horribly and at a young age in a new marriage with a little baby. He didn't want to go and nobody asked his permission. He just felt really angry at God. Who the hell does he think he is? 
taken me when my life was just getting good. But over the course of working with him, we just tried to offer some other ideas, some other different ways to think about things and challenge that presumption that he had made. Nobody does that readily, but he was motivated by love and we pushed because he gave us permission to, but Ray changed his mind. It's not that hard to do. And boy, is it hard to do. As a spiritual practice, would you be willing to challenge yourself and say, is there something that's making me unhappy because I've, my mind is made up? Have you painted yourself into some corner? Sometimes it sounds like, well, I tried that and it wouldn't work or it didn't work. Well, uh, maybe the next time it will. Anyway, I just want to put that idea out there that a, a spiritual practice that could be quite helpful is recognizing that changing one's mind is a really wise thing to do and it should be done many times in a life. You don't need to think of yourself as uh, a loser or somehow wrongheaded because you found yourself to be wrong about a thing. It might just be that you were receptive enough to new information that you had the wisdom to form a new idea. A lot of the people that I've dealt with in the afterlife have formed ideas that are too hard on themselves. Have you ever been your own worst critic? Sometimes people can just be so hard on themselves and nobody around them who loves them would think of them as they think about themselves. One little spiritual practice that you might try is uh, simply looking at yourself in a mirror and not looking away talking to yourself, looking yourself in the eye and saying, you keep thinking this thought, but is it true? Your ego is going to want to say, of course it's true because I only believe true things. Okay, well, ask again. Okay, I get it. You want to believe that this is true, but is it really? That opinion you formed about yourself, about your spouse, your children, people around you, folks at work, the universe itself. Have you formed any idea that you're acting on that's making you unhappy? Ray had done that. He was isolated for 40 years, watching his wife age and waiting for her to pass. But in the meanwhile, he was lonely because he chose loneliness. He was so angry that he just told the rest of the universe to go away and leave him alone. Well, it wouldn't absolutely, because it can't. We're, we're, we're embedded in a relational universe. But Ray did everything in his power to make his, uh, his world as isolated as he possibly could. Thanks be to God, he found his way out. And I'm grateful that I and my prayer partners got to be uh, part of that and, and that he allowed us to share that with you. So you might try that. Just look at a mirror and ask yourself, is this true? And is someone around you offered some sort of alternative way of thinking that you've shot down right away? That won't work. Well, maybe in a quiet moment, bathrooms where there are mirrors are usually quiet places where you have some privacy. You might just linger there uh, at, before a mirror and say, is this true? And see if kind of your higher self or your guardian angel or the Holy Spirit a, a, a voice of truth, however you imagine that, can elevate and get you to think, hmm, maybe that could be. 
we watched Ray do that. And that enabled him to get his heart's desire, which was to be able to assist his wife and be with her or welcome her when she crossed. To presume, you know, I love words. Pre means before. And S-U-M, sum, has to do, it's, it's the end of a math problem is the sum. When you add the numbers, you get the sum. To presume means to come to the conclusion in advance, to sum up before you even started. Presumption is a sin in, in Catholic theology when you, you pay no attention to truth because your mind is made up because you presumed that you're already at the end of a thing that you already know the end. I'm, I'm living on a university campus. It's the first week of school. And boy, is it difficult to be in a classroom with a verbal person who is presumptuous, who knows it all already and uh, makes that evident in a, in a classroom. Have you ever been in that classroom where, where a fellow student seems to know everything already? It's just uh, not at all helpful, but it could be you behaving that way. And if that's the case, well, why not change? Why not just say, I don't have to behave that way all the time. One last note, I've named this this whole podcast, The Joyful Friar, not because I am that joyful friar, although I want to be, and much of the time I am, but when I'm not, I try to wait in joyful hope. Hope and anxiety both borrow from an unknown future and drag it into the present. When people are anxious, worried about something negative that they think might be about to happen, they're always presuming, they're concluding something before it's happened, and they make themselves unhappy or nervous or cranky because they have made up their mind that bad things are going to be in my future, and so I'm going to be anxious about that. And they can make themselves miserable in the present moment and make others around them miserable in the present moment. Conversely, we also have the opportunity to presume positive things, and we have a word for that, hope. I hope for things, um, and I don't just mean really outlandish things like the long odds of winning the lottery, but I can hope for a better tomorrow than today. And sometimes my hoping sets me on a path that makes me want to work toward the hoped for thing. If I hope for a particular outcome, like this is only my third podcast, I think, or yeah, I think it's the third one, fourth one. I hope this finds an audience and that people find it helpful. How can I know that? That's a That would be a future outcome. Well, I can imagine it. I can dream it up. I can hope for it but it'll stay at the level of a hope in my head if I don't get an action plan and start making specific things happen in the present. And that of course is uh, meant that I had to learn technologies I didn't know how to use. I had to draw together a team of people and first of all, ask them if they wanted to help, uh, not knowing whether they would or not. Um, and chances are I'll, I'll look back on these early podcasts someday and go, well, that was a, a, certainly a sweet, naive first effort. I get better at things by doing them. You know, practice makes perfect. So anyway, joyful hope. Ray had that. Maybe not joyful. I don't think he would have said he was joyful, but he was hopeful even while he was in isolation that one of these days he was going to get to be with his wife. 
And he was determined that that was going to happen. And that was all it took for him was to be determined. And he had a, a shred of hope that enabled him to eventually uh, have his heart's desire fulfilled. So that's enough for this little episode. Those are a few practices and lessons that might arise out of the story of Ray. I hope you'll stick with us. Uh, next time, we'll go on to another uh, story of someone who's allowed us in on uh, their transition in the afterlife. But for now, if you'd like to be in touch, I can be found at nathan-castle.com. Under the contact uh, bar, click on that. and it'll, it'll show you an email form that uh, will put you in touch with me. And I try to be as responsive as I can be. For now, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Joyful Friar. You can visit me at nathan-castle.com. Send me a message by clicking the contact button. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can make a donation by clicking the donate button. See you next time. God bless.